Good morning, everybody. I want to remind you, whoever you are, that you are a creature, that God created you. You didn't ask to be created, but God created you and put you on this earth with a purpose, and that God knows the ins and outs of every single thing in your life. He knows all the details, more than you even know about your past. He knows the details of your present moment, and he knows what will happen with you and to you in the future. And God is good. Amen? God is good. Let's pray as we prepare to open God's word together. Father, in this world... Uh, where so many human creatures rumble and rattle about who is greatest, where we are always vying for some sort of hierarchical uh, one-upping of the next person, trying to be on top no matter what the cost, disagreeing, polarized, all the rest of it, Lord. We confess this morning that ultimately you alone are great. You alone are worthy of praise, worthy of the exaltation of our hearts and our lips. You are exalted, you are lofty, you are high, and none of us is. Father, this morning, may your greatness and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love be apparent as we look into your word this morning. And may you speak to us, Lord, whatever your pleasure is, speak to each one of us, in the way that you have purposed for this hour. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and may Jesus be exalted. Amen. Now, many of us in the church have heard about, perhaps, uh, read about, the peace that passes understanding. Uh, for many years, we have heard tell of this peace. Maybe in our devotional times over the years, we've run across on more than one occasion Philippians 4 7, which of course mentions the peace of God which transcends all understanding. And some of us have wondered what exactly, what exactly does a peace that passes all understanding, that transcends our understanding, what, what does it look like and what does it feel? Like can, can we put a face on this piece and understand the contours of this piece? It, it sounds obviously so alluring to us, doesn't it? This piece that passes understanding. What, what exactly does this look like? Well, friends, our psalm this morning, which is Psalm 131, I hope you have a Bible, you have it open. Psalm 131 is like a photo of the peace that Paul describes in Philippians 4.7. In Psalm 131, we can see the contours of the peace that passes understanding. We, could, we can put a face to that special peace. So Psalm 131 is like a detailed sort of portrait of that peace. And maybe you're a person this morning who walked into this building with a lot of noise going on inside, with a lot of static interference in your soul, a sort of nervous feeling 
that you've been carrying around. Well, my sincere prayer for you this morning, my friend, is that our brief time in this psalm for you will be like a healing tonic that the Spirit administers to you, to your weary soul, even as you may be somewhat challenged by the content of this little psalm. You ready? Now, as we get started in this psalm, uh, a rather interesting thing to notice about it, it's a very brief psalm, it's a prayer to God, but the prayer does not include a single petition, does not include a single request. This is instructive for us. Because so often, if you're like me, we tend to make uh, the focus of our prayers solely or only on petition. Of course, we should bring our petitions to God, but sometimes our prayers amount to nothing more than petition. But here in this psalm, we listen as David prays to God without a single petition. It's very interesting. So David begins his prayer, notice, by voicing to God a sort of self-inventory. A self-inventory. David in prayer, he's kind of like an investigative reporter here, reporting on his findings concerning himself. Have you ever prayed that way? He begins by praying, O Lord, so he's addressing the Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised to High. Notice the body parts here. Heart and eyes. Isn't this a fascinating thing here? David reports to the Lord on the condition of his heart and his eyes. It takes a relationship, listen, it takes a relationship with the Lord to be honestly and soberly aware of the condition of our heart, the actual condition of our heart and the condition of our vision, of our seeing. God has revealed to David that David's heart is not lifted up, that David's eyes are not raised too high. In fact, it's God, amen, who has done this very work in David. No one but God has done this very work in David. And now David is self-aware enough to voice this honest report, this sober report, back to the Lord. David says, notice, that his heart is not lifted up. Now, a heart that is lifted up is a haughty heart. Yes? A person with a heart lifted up is a person who imagines himself or imagines herself to be superior to others. A person with a heart lifted up is a person who claims authority over things that they really don't have any authority over. The person with the heart lifted up would be a person who has a high opinion of herself or himself, a proud person in the negative sense of the word. There is hubris in a person with a heart lifted up. And the sad outcome, the sad outcome 
for the person whose heart is lifted up is that he becomes frustrated, angry, morose, when others don't seem to share the high opinion of himself that he subscribes to. Yes? This person with the lifted up heart can experience significant noise and static and turmoil inside when she is not receiving the accolades and the attention that she thinks she deserves. Now, friends, I hope we can see very clearly, all of us, how this psalm is already doing heart surgery on us. Amen? Interpreting us. As I always say, we like to think we go to the Bible to interpret the Bible, when in fact the Bible interprets us. Yes? Not one of us, doesn't matter who we are, not one of us is above such a tendency to have our hearts lifted up. May the Lord right now deal with us redemptively, even if painfully, prune us. God likes to prune people, right? To make the roses grow better. Yes. May he prune us, if necessary, in his great wisdom for his glory and our good. By his spirit, may he truly make us more self-aware than we actually are. Yes? More self-aware than we actually are. David says further here, notice, under the all-seeing eye of God. You know that God sees everything? Under the all-seeing eye of God, David says that his eyes are not raised too high. Now, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17, haughty eyes, eyes that are raised too high, are among the things listed that God explicitly hates. God hates it when haughty eyes look down on others when we undervalue other people who are all made in his image, while all at the same time overestimating ourselves and overestimating our abilities. When we have eyes lifted too high, we get irritated, don't we? When other people don't fall in line with our program which we think so obviously is superior to any other program, <laughs> yes? When we think too much of ourselves, when our eyes are lifted high, we get despondent with those that we have judged as being beneath us. When they challenge us, we don't like that. Haughty eyes, eyes lifted high. I want to ask you a very important question this morning. Who is the only one in the entire universe who is actually lofty and high? Who is it? God is, yes? And I venture to say that so much of the inner static, the inner fuss, and the noise that exists inside of us comes because we have overestimated ourselves. 
we've overestimated ourselves. We have insisted on taking the place, just like Adam did, on taking the place of loftiness and height that belongs only to God. Now, while we're on this subject, friends, isn't it true that there is a pervasive, and I do mean pervasive, message in our culture, and even, I would say, unfortunately, in many quarters of the church, that encourages us to be lofty. <laughs> it's okay. We live in 2022, right? This is a pervasive message in our day that is self-focused and self-aggrandizing and self-absorbed. The me-centered message shouts to us, affirm yourself. Actualize yourself. Esteem your Self. Rely on yourself. Be your most powerful self. Assert yourself. Live your truth. Rise to the top. Gain admiration. Be famous. Be your best you. Only hang out with powerful and positive people who can give you advantage. It's awful quiet in here this morning. My friends, that's a very entirely worldly message, and the message is that your self-ambition is everything, and that Jesus exists as your divine butler in order to make it all happen for you. And then, here comes God in Scripture. God from his unmatchable position as creator of the universe. And God says such upsetting things like deny yourself, lose your life for the sake of Jesus in order to find it. Stop boasting in self. Do nothing. How much? Nothing. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Or, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Add to that course, David in our verse, essentially here rejoicing that God has so worked in his life that his heart is not lifted up, nor his eyes raised too high. David is amazed under God. He's amazed that he, David, doesn't find himself too impressive, that he doesn't find himself too important or too indispensable. 
Now, my friends, talk about a radically countercultural message from our God. Yes, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. In many ways, this strikes hard against the very things that our fallen hearts really cherish. But God has his way of turning our settled arrangements on their head, does he not? God knows that our contentedness only comes in him. In his presence, there is abundant joy, Psalm 1611. It will not come by the obsessive promotion and exaltation of the self. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whatever you, it doesn't matter what you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory, not of self, but to the glory of God. He is the star of your show, not you. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. Amen? David continues in verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, the word occupy here in the original Hebrew is literally walk. I do not walk. I do not traipse about in things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, listen, my friend, listen, okay? Admit it right now. Just let's have a time of confession, open confession. There are many things in your life that are quite simply beyond you. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Many things in your life that are quite simply, there are many things in our lives that are well outside the postal code of our knowledge and our intellect and our ability. There are many things that my perception cannot perceive, that my intellect cannot manage. Scripture is guiding us here, isn't it, to drop the pretensions and to admit as limited human beings, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm limited. Do it right now. Amen. As limited human beings, that there are indeed, there are indeed impossibilities for us. There are impossibilities for us as finite creatures. There are limits to what you and I can understand. There are great limits to our power as human beings. There is mystery, yes? Things are not in your control as much as you would like them to be. Not one of us is God. Despite our fallen insistence that we are. But yet we insist, don't we? (laughs) To use David Pallison's examples, he's written some good stuff on Psalm 131. To use his example, so many of us insist, don't we? on controlling other people's actions. Controlling other people's behavior. Controlling other people's choices. 
in a sort of godlike way, we insist that other people fall in line with our agenda. <laughs> we start looking at other people kind of like we look at the vacuum that we are buying at Walmart. It must function as I demand it to function, or I will be very upset. She must do what is on my agenda, otherwise I will be sour. And what happens to us in that process, sooner or, or later, the reality creeps in that people are not in our control, yes? That the actions, behaviors, and choices of other people are outside the realm of our control. It's all too high. It's beyond us. And so what do we do in that circumstance? We rage. We despair. We fume. We get anxious. To quote uh, my pastoral mentor, some of us look like we've been sucking on cement. Sour-faced. And so the noise and the static inside us just builds, doesn't it? Take another example from Paulison. Some of us, ooh, this is a, boy, I'm waiting for the tomatoes on this one. Some of us insist, we insist on avoiding illness and avoiding death. Very common in our day as if it's all in our control, right? <laughs> so we obsess, some of us do, obsess unhealthily over diet and vitamins and supplements and concoctions and exercise. And we grow suspicious of the advice of doctors. I joke with my brother all the time, he's a doctor in Alberta, and I text him, you know those internet things that say, what doctors aren't telling us, right? So I text them and I say, what are you not telling me today? <laughs> we grow suspicious of doctor's advice. We, we will control our own health. Thank you very much. But then, say, we get really sick. We get terminally ill and we die. Turns out, we had less control over our health than we thought. Turns out, it was impossible by our obsessive efforts to actually reach 130 years old. The point, friends, is that there is so much in this world and in your life that is simply beyond you, beyond me, beyond our abilities, beyond our powers, beyond our intellect, beyond our control. And David sits before the Lord in prayer here, and he confesses this out loud. Such a freeing thing. He just comes out and says it. I do not walk about, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I don't obsess over the secret things that belong to the Lord, to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29. I recognize my finite, limited, creaturely humanness before you, O Lord. I humble myself. Verse 2. It's only three verses. We're at verse 2. But I have what? 
Now, don't you want this in your life? But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Well, yeah. To not have your heart lifted up in pride that continually ends up frustrating you, to not have your eyes lifted high in selfish ambition that causes you so much inner noise, to not constantly pretend that you can attain the impossible and that you can understand what is actually closed to you, to be done with such tendencies would bring a calmness and a quietness to your soul, would it not? The noise and the clamor inside of you would dissipate and it would go away. If I could find my identity in God instead of in my own nervous, defensive self, instead of in my own psychology, where everybody's finding their identity these days, right? If I could find my identity in God, if I could actually perceive myself hourly, minute by minute, second by second, perceive myself as a limited, dependent, finite creature who has no ultimate control, living as I do amongst other broken, finite, limited creatures who also don't have control, <laughs> then maybe I'd start to see that the playing field of humanity, well, it's actually level, isn't it? It's actually level. I'm broken, you're broken. I'm limited, you are limited. I'm finite, you're finite. I am not God, you are not God. And the happy effect of that would be that my quivering, shaking soul would relax and turn quiet and get calm. The inner noise, the clamor would greatly diminish. I would cease from being so on edge and so irritable and so anxious. The peace that transcends understanding that you and I long for would be our regular welcome companion, even in the midst of the stuff of life, even in the midst of the problems. And so the prayer is, God, by your grace and power, lift my heart down. Lift my heart down from its height. Help us, O oh God, to turn our eyes down from the height that they have been at. Turn them down. Help us, Lord, to stop occupying ourselves with impossibilities. To use Paulison's great phrase, this is a good one to have on your fridge. He says, Lord, disciple me into composure. We need to be discipled into composure. Lord, disciple me into composure. By your grace, help me with the self-mastery that David is describing here. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like what? Ah, this is beautiful. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child 
is my soul within me. Now let's consider this beautiful image here for a minute of a weaned child with its mother. A weaned child is a child who in former days demanded milk, and I do mean demanded, from his mother's breast in order to satisfy his hunger. Mothers, say a hearty amen. But now those days are past. Now the weaned toddler can do what? Can come and can rest contented by the side of his mother without expecting or demanding to breastfeed. In former days, the child would get agitated, right? It's the best imitation of a toddler that I'm ever going to give you. The child would get agitated, fussy, anxious beside his mother just before the feeding started. It was all about him, right? And the satisfaction and the immediate of his hunger. But that now there's been this change. Now the weaned child, listen, can just be with his mother for the sake of being with his mother. No more demanding. No more fussing for the milk. David says that his soul is like a weaned child. Get that. His inner self is like a weaned child. Where before David was fussy, agitated, thrashing about like a little tornado, where before he had been seeking the satisfaction of his ambition, thrashing about and focused on his own selfish desires and demanding that God fulfill them, now David is like a weaned child. Now David just desires to be with God for God and for who God is. Now David just wants to be with God and rest contented with God, even if God denies David, listen, even if God denies David what David had fussed about, yes, to be with God is the thing. David has found that the essential thing, friends, is not the fulfillment of David's dreams and wants and desires and agendas, but the essential thing is God himself who is the treasure that far surpasses everything. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And then the final verse of this short psalm, verse 3. In verse 3, David turns now from describing his own inner peace now to commanding you and commanding me to hope in the Lord. O Israel, people of God, that's you and me, hope in the Lord 
from this time forth, on this Sunday, and forevermore. Yes, my dear friends, snuggle up from this time, snuggle up from this time forth and forevermore, like the weaned child to its mother, to the Lord. Trust him. Are you trusting him today? Oh yeah, pastor, but I got this thing happening. Are you trusting him today? Hope in him, trust him, wait on him. His presence is what is going to take that awful bite that you feel. It's going to take that awful bite out of your life. His being with you, working with you, is what is going to kill haughtiness in your life and bring humility to you and show you your limits and make you quiet and calm and submissive. His all-powerful presence in your life will dissolve the selfish ambition which is corroding you. And he will give you the peace which passes your understanding. Now, as we wrap this up, Jesus is the one who lived Psalm 131 in fullest measure. Didn't Jesus describe himself as lowly in heart? Think about that. Jesus, the one in Colossians 1 who's there at creation, creating everything and sustaining everything by the word of his power, he describes himself as lowly. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus did not lift his heart high or raise his eyes too high, but rather he did what? Humbled himself by doing what? By becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And in, in dying his atoning death, his trust and his paying attention to and focus was completely on the Father, right? He said, Father, as he's on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the incarnate Christ accepted human limitations for a time, didn't he? He is said to have learned, interesting, obedience. Learned obedience in Hebrews chapter 5. And he himself even said at one point that there was something too great and too marvelous even for him when he said that not even he knew the day, the hour of his return, but only the Father. Jesus epitomized and fulfilled the quiet, humble, composed, trusting attitude of Psalm 131. And this crucified, risen, and soon coming Jesus says to you by his word this morning that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. To the humble, among other things, he gives the grace of peace and quiet in the inner person. And he warns us also, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Romans 12, verse 3. That's a warning for me and a warning for you. And he says in Matthew 18, 2, that unless we turn and become like children, 
like a weaned child with its like children, like trusting, teachable children that we will never enter the kingdom of God. And so, my friends, in Psalm 131, you are given a portrait, a detailed photo of the peace of God that passes understanding, epitomized in Jesus Christ. What will you do with it? Well, by the Spirit's enabling power, repent, trust him, humble yourself under his lofty greatness, become like a child before him, delete the noise of self and gain the blessed quiet and the contentment of his presence. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we are a noisy generation, uh, not only externally, but internally. Perhaps a lot of that noise is due to the technology that is like another appendage to us now. But Father, I pray that your spirit would work strongly in this congregation, that someone or some people here would take to heart the word of God this morning, that your spirit would move and that you would make us, disciple us into composure, Lord. Make us quiet, trusting, composed people of God. Walk with us, go with us from this place later today in the name of Jesus. Amen.